Well, we've got a doozy of a passage this morning, don't we? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 we're looking at. Uh, don't worry, there's a couple more good ones coming up before we get to the end of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and uh, ask for God's help as we look at this part of his word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, that it shows us uh, how you want us to live. Um, help us to understand your word rightly. Give us uh, wisdom, give us uh, insight, um, help us to read your word uh, both sensibly but also humbly, that we be ready and willing to accept um, your wisdom uh, and your goodness for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think our culture has a rather conflicted view of marriage. Uh, clearly, it's still held in very high regard by many. In fact, I'd say the vast majority of people still want to get married and ultimately do end up getting married. Uh, and we've still got all kinds of romantic and even idealistic notions about marriage. But there is also an increasing scepticism and cynicism about, well, what we call the institution of marriage. And insert all the jokes that you've heard at weddings at that point. Um, it's true, though, that a third of all marriages end in divorce, uh, and that rate is nearly double for second and third marriages. And it's true that less and less people are choosing to get married at all. The, the marriage rates have been declining quite steadily since the 70s. And there are all kinds of reasons for this. Um, the introduction of no-fault divorce uh, in Australia in 1975, uh, the sexual revolution which took place in the 60s and the 70s, um, uh, a decline in the number of people professing uh, to belong to faiths that would prize um, marriage and monogamy. And so for all these reasons, the social stigma um, surrounding uh, people having sex outside of marriage or living together out of wedlock, um, those, those social stigmas have largely um, disappeared in our culture, um, certainly still there to some extent. But ours is a culture, isn't it, that's largely abandoned the connection between marriage and sexual relationships. The idea that sex is something that should be kept exclusively for marriage is, well, it's a bit of a joke these days, isn't it? And the city of Corinth and the Greco-Roman culture that Corinth was surrounded in was not unlike our own in that respect. Um, their city was saturated in sexually liberal practices. Um, we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. And we even saw last week that it had worked its way into the life of the church as well. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth here, uh, firstly as a, a plea, I think, a plea not to conform to the world's way of doing things, not to compromise God's ways with the standards and the practices of the surrounding culture. And in this chapter... Uh, Paul both wants to um, commend uh, the right and proper use of our sexuality, uh, but more broadly, he also wants to talk about our whole attitude towards marriage and singleness and our relationships with each other. Uh, I hope we'll see that behind all the specific instructions that Paul gives us um, in this rather confronting uh, chapter, there's a powerfully liberating idea, and it's this that God both wants us to and enables us to be faithful to him in whatever situation we are in. Whatever our circumstances, God calls us to be faithful 
in our walk with him. Now, I want to ask that we keep a few things in mind as we look at this chapter. Um, this isn't all the Bible has to say on these topics of marriage and sexual relationships. It's certainly not going to answer all of the questions you might have about these things. Um, and I'm not going to be attempting to do that either or pretend that I have all of those answers. But what it does teach us and the framework that it gives us will free us in many ways to do what is right in God's eyes, um, especially in a world with a very complicated and confusing understanding of relationships. So Paul begins there, verse 1 of chapter 7. This is what he writes. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And now this is literally, in the Greek, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, which is, as the translators of the NIV have rightly understood, it's a euphemism for sex. Uh, and for Paul, a euphemism for marriage itself. I think what's probably going on here is that, that there's been a kind of a counter-reaction within the church against all of the sexual immorality that's both around them and even within the church. And there are some believers in Corinth that seem to have suggested that it would be better to have nothing to do with sex altogether, that sex itself seems to be the problem. There's a kind of abstinence movement taking hold within the life of the church. And Paul's response is to push back hard against that idea. And so he writes this. He says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this doesn't strike me as a particularly romantic view of marriage. Uh, express, expressions like fulfilling your marital duty, uh, not depriving each other, doesn't exactly get the pulse racing, does it? It all sounds a little kind of Victorian, doesn't it? A little 18th century, perhaps. But what is Paul telling married couples to do? Well, he's calling on men and women to be intentional about meeting each other's sexual needs. And we may wince at some of the expressions that are used here. They do sound dated, don't they? They sound perhaps even unhelpful. But we also need to realise that what Paul's writing here would have been radical stuff for the culture and the thinking at the time. Notice there that he's acknowledging the equal rights of women within a marriage. He says wives have the same rights and needs as their husbands. And notice not just in this passage but as in, throughout this chapter how Paul goes to great lengths to write things and, and repeat himself in order to ensure that the instructions are reciprocal for men and women. All of this was unheard of in the ancient world. In fact he makes a particular point of acknowledging that women have God-given sexual desires, just the same as men, and that that is a good thing. This idea was not heard of in the first century in that part of the world. Notice too that Paul talks here, the way he talks about sex shows us that it's not simply for procreation, as some people have suggested. God's design for sex includes both pleasure and intimacy. 
that sex binds and it builds. It binds two people together and it builds intimacy between them. And so all of that means that for a married couple to deprive each other of physical intimacy, it is dangerous to their relationship. Now Paul uses this language about um, having authority over your body and ceding that to somebody else. And I think we need to acknowledge that that certainly has the potential to be abused and has been. But I think to use this language in that way is very much a misreading of Paul's intent. In fact, he's saying the very opposite of that. He's saying that sex should not be about gratifying yourself. It's, about, it's an act of loving service to another. And so he's not giving people permission to make selfish demands of their spouses. That's the very opposite of what he's saying. He is saying we shouldn't weaponize sex in a relationship or use it to manipulate or frustrate each other. What it is is an encouragement to use sex to express and build love and intimacy for each other's good. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't get into specifics here, or maybe you feel he's gone far too specific already. Um, and I'm not going to share with you my top te 10 tips for a fulfilling love life. You'll be grateful to know that. Um, look out for the book next year. But seriously, if you are after that kind of help, uh, I can happily recommend a couple of books um, or even a counsellor if that's what is needed because this is important and this does matter. See, for so many Christians, trying to live with sexual integrity and purity is the biggest struggle that they have. And living in a city like Corinth or living in a city like Sydney where we're constantly bombarded with sexual images and, and ways of thinking and approaching relationships uh, that are so contrary to what God would want for us. It only makes it harder. And so I think Paul here wisely warns married couples about the danger of neglecting each other's sexual needs. He says it's only giving Satan more opportunity to operate. So God in his wisdom commands married couples to enjoy each other. And that's how the gospel should affect your sex life. All right, moving on. About divorce. Uh, Paul seems to think the gospel ought to make a difference to divorce as well. Uh, so pick it up there, verse 10, chapter 7. He says to the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. How should the gospel affect divorce? Well, it shouldn't happen. Let me put it this way. If two people are committed to serving God and that they promised to one another that they're going to love and care for each other with a kind of sacrificial, uh, unconditional love of Jesus, the assumption is they ought to be able to make that work. Or is that just some sort of naive, sentimental notion? But of course, people aren't perfect, are they? People are sinful and broken and insecure and selfish and fail to keep their marriage vows and sometimes even betray 
the people that they love. Marriages sometimes fail. Uh, a mate of mine, a Christian mate of mine, got married a few years ago and on the very first day of his honeymoon, his new bride told him that she really doesn't think that they're compatible, that she thinks that she's made a terrible mistake. And within two weeks, it was all over. Now, that might be an extreme example, but that can happen. And of course, there are all kinds of other events and circumstances of life that can put an enormous, even unbearable strain on a marriage. The loss of a child, mental and physical illness, addictions and abuse. These all have the potential and do break down relationships. And so I think we need to recognise that that's a reality. Human relationships, marriages sometimes break down. At the same time, we also want to recognise that, that that's not God's ideal, that's not what he wants for us. His design for marriage is, as Mike just reminded us, a lifelong union. A lot more we could say about that. A lot of what-ifs. But I'm not going to get into any more of that. Leave it there for now. Happy to take questions on this or anything else in today's talk as well. Not at the end. You can come and talk to me later. Uh, moving on. Next topic. About your non-Christian spouse. So... Paul's got this, if there's a theme I suppose that ties this chapter get together, I think it's this idea that um, we can be faithful regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in. And uh, there's a particular section in this chapter where Paul addresses those who are in the situation where they're married to unbelievers, they're married to non-Christians. Uh, so let's read it, verse 12. He says, To the rest I say this, I not the Lord... Uh, and just to make a point about that, just to interrupt myself while I'm in the middle of the reading, the, uh, the Lord, not I thing, and the I, not the Lord thing, I think Paul's simply saying that when he's talking about the Lord, he's, he's like quoting um, something that Jesus said. And when he's saying, I, not the Lord, uh, he's just sort of saying, I don't have any specific instruction. We didn't get a specific instruction from Jesus about this, but I'm going to tell you um, what you should do. So I don't think he's saying, you can ignore me, but really listen to Jesus. I think he's just identifying where Jesus is, you can kind of quote him directly on something, and where this particular scenario he's talking about, Jesus didn't ever actually say anything about it. So, moving on. Uh, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Again, again, in some ways we're trying to infer the situation from what we find here in the, in the text, but there seems to be the suggestion from some of the people in Corinth that uh, for those that uh, came to faith later in life as adults, which would have been most of them, um, but uh, only they came to faith, that is their husband or wife didn't become a believer, uh, there seems to be some people suggesting that they should leave their spouses if they haven't also become Christians. They should divorce them as though perhaps their unbelieving husband or wife makes the marriage illegitimate or ungodly, uh, or that it's sort of corrupting their kids in some way. He makes reference to that a little bit later. But Paul says all of that is nonsense. He says, if, if that's where you were when God called you into his family, well, that's where he wants you to be. So verse 17, he says this, Nevertheless, 
Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is an idea he goes on to apply to circumcision and even slavery. He says, whatever situation you are in or are in, when God calls you to know him, be faithful to God, live as a believer in that situation. The bottom line is this. God hasn't called anyone to leave their marriage because he saved them. In fact, Paul seems to suggest that he saved you within that relationship so that you can be a witness to your husband or wife in that context. Now, he does deal with, I think, a situation which is down the other end of that spectrum. He says, um, if your husband or wife simply can't tolerate the fact that you now own Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, he says, well, you aren't duty-bound to persist in that relationship. So in verse 15, he'd said this, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If your spouse simply cannot tolerate the fact that you own Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you're not bound to stay in that marriage. But if they're willing to make it work, make it work. Uh, I know a wonderful Christian woman who was in this very situation for over 20 years. She'd grown up in a, a Catholic family, um, but she herself was nominally Catholic, uh, wouldn't have called herself a Christian when she got married, and her husband wasn't either. Uh, I'd say he'd be nominally Anglican. But several years into her marriage, uh, she became a Christian through the witness of a good friend and a neighbour, uh, and she started attending a local Baptist church. But her husband wanted nothing to do with that. Through her perseverance uh, and her faithful devotion to God, it meant that her children were privileged to be raised under her Christian influence. And her husband got to observe her life firsthand as well. By the grace of God, both of her daughters came to know Christ and after more than 20 years of praying and hoping, uh, her husband eventually did too. Now, that's not everyone's experience. And God doesn't promise that it's always going to work out that way. Um, Paul writes here, how do you know if you'll save your spouse? You don't know that. But there is a unique opportunity that a believer has to be Christ's witness, his ambassador, his representative within your own family and to show that difference that Jesus makes. So God's not calling anyone to flee their marriages because he's called them to him. He wants people to live out the gospel in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And for some of us, that's going to mean showing our family the love of Christ. All right, lastly, Paul wants to have something to say about those who are single, those who aren't married. And the first thing he wants us to appreciate is that in the end, married or not married, it's not that big a deal. See what he says in verse 27? He says, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek a release. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. He's saying, you can faithfully serve God, married or single, 
It's not the be-all and the end-all. Let's not get too worked up about it. I think sometimes we invest too much into the whole concept of marriage. I think Paul's point here is that these are all matters of wisdom. They're not, they're not issues of sinfulness. Um, you might have noticed that Paul does say, however, on more than one occasion in this chapter, that he thinks it's good for single people to remain single. He implies it even here. Uh, and he expands on that in a couple of places in this chapter. And I think, well, I read that and it seems a bit odd, and I think most people probably agree with me, because the experience of many single people and the unhelpfully and freely shared opinion of many married people to their single friends is that singleness isn't so great. But if we look at Paul's reasons for encouraging this life of unwedded bliss, uh, we'll see that once again it comes back to how we view our lives in light of the gospel. Uh, if you have a look at verse 29, Paul says there that uh, the time is short. I haven't got that verse. You'll have to look it up yourself. Uh, in verse 29, Paul says that the time is short. And in verse 31, he talks about the world passing away. Paul is driven by his convictions about the importance and place of the gospel and God's work in this world. And he wants us all to think about how we make all of our decisions in light of that, in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is coming back. And so it's in that context that Paul can make this claim that singleness is, in fact, the better option. He explains how this works in verses 32 to 35, where he writes this. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul can encourage people to remain single because he says here single people are free from some of the distractions, the responsibilities, the, the troubles and concerns, as he calls them here, uh, that come with marriage and with family. It's the stuff that's part and parcel of having a spouse and having kids. Now, I don't think that's to say that single people won't face troubles of their own. Uh, that's patently not true. But the fact is, says Paul, those who are not married can make certain decisions without needing to weigh the impact of those decisions on a family. I actually think Paul's got himself in mind as he writes this. No doubt it would have been a lot more difficult for Paul to live the life that he did, to exercise the ministry that he had, if he had a wife and children. Not having a spouse meant Paul could travel all over the Roman Empire, doing life-threatening things, uh, even take great personal risks, without needing to consider how it would impact his family. Some of you will know this man, uh, this is John Chapman. John was uh, an Anglican minister here in Sydney and a bachelor all his life. He died a few years ago now. Uh, John was a gifted evangelist and exercised a, an amazing ministry in Australia and overseas. Uh, John always said he, he didn't think he ever made a conscious choice to be single. 
He would joke that he just got to 40 and he realised that he was. Um, this was despite many people getting in his ear and telling him that he really needed to get married if he wanted to have an effective ministry. Now, if you know anything about John, you'll know that he was a man who was kind of preoccupied with what God was doing in the world, sort of so devoted to that, that this decision about whether or not to get married, well, it simply wasn't a huge concern for him. John's the kind of guy I'd suggest had the same gift as Paul talks about having. Uh, in verse, it's actually verse 7, he talks this way. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has his own gift. One has this gift, another has that. Paul's talking there in the context of marriage and singleness. See, while marriage has its troubles, singleness has its own set of difficulties. And because we can understand that singleness, as Paul talks about it here, is a kind of gift, I think that also means we should be aware that the single life, as much as Paul talks it up here, Paul would recognise that it's not good for everyone. I suggest possibly not very many people at all. But if you aren't married, whether it's a deliberate choice of yours or not, Paul wants us all to try and view our circumstances from the perspective of the gospel. And so for those who are single, to think about how your particular circumstances can be used for God's sake and in his service. If you're single, are you able to thank God for the way that you can use your particular freedoms to serve God and his people? Whatever circumstances we're in, married or unmarried or even in a difficult marriage, God calls on us to be faithful to him. And we can do this because we've been transformed by the gospel. We can be faithful. We can love others in this sacrificial kind of way because God in his grace does that work in our hearts and enables us to love with his kind of love. We're going to respond uh, in prayer, and James is going to lead us in that.